0: Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you. You've been very kind to us in speaking to us and in having uh, what you have said recorded in your word, the Bible. We thank you, Heavenly Father, because uh, your word is able to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped to live lives pleasing to you. We pray this morning that you help us to listen carefully to what your word is saying, to understand it and to put it into practice in our lives. We pray that you'll give us a godly sorrow where we've, uh, where we've uh, not been pleasing to you that leads us to repentance and that leads ultimately to our salvation through Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. I, I like it when people flatter me. I like it when people tell me how good I am. I like it when people tell me how clever I am. doesn't happen all that often, but I do like it when it does happen. I like it when people tell me how godly I am. I like flattery. On the other hand, I'm not so keen when people criticise me. I especially hate it, and this is uh, sometimes the case with my wife, I especially hate it when they're right, um, when, when they hit the nail on the head. Um, I, I don't like being told I've done the wrong thing. I don't like having my sin and my ungodliness pointed out. and I don't like people telling them when I've wronged them. I don't like people telling them when I've failed them. I'm not so keen on criticism. But in the Bible, there's a very interesting proverb. I put it there on your outline, Proverbs 27.6. You can see it there, Proverbs 27.6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy... Multiplies kisses. Did you get that? Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. It's true, isn't it? Now, you see it all. Those uh, you see it at all those silly award nights for you know actors and musicians and other irrelevant people. Uh, you, you, it's all it's all big smiles and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> professional. <laughs> I really just need to stick to my notes and not, uh, not deviate. <laughs> you see it at all those silly award nights for actors or musicians, according to the notes. Um, it's, all, <clears throat> it's all big smiles and air kisses and flattery, but you just know what's going on behind the scenes as they're all divorcing each other, and so you just know that the knives are out. It's often true that you can't trust the people who flatter you The moment someone calls me reverend, I know they're up to something. Um, It's an enemy who multiplies kisses. The real friend is the person who's willing to wound you. The person who's willing to tell you when you're going astray. The person who's got the love and the guts to, to give you valid criticism. To pull you back onto the straight and narrow. The person who will hassle you when you haven't been to church. The person who will confront you if you're going out with a non-Christian. The person who will challenge you not to be stingy with your money. Fair and constructive criticism is far more helpful than flattery. We may not like it, but we know it's true, don't we? So, So the question I want to ask you is this. How do you handle it? How do you take criticism? Are you a thin-skinned person, uh, an oversensitive person? Do, does everybody need to walk on eggshells around you as they smile and tell you that you're doing well, even when you're not? Or, or do you do you back away from people who challenge you? Do you stop being friends with the, with people who make you uncomfortable? Or do you uh, do you counterattack? immediately start attacking them for all their faults and their hypocrisy? Or are you one of those people that lets criticism bite you so deeply that you despair? Just throw up your hands, I'm a hopeless person, obviously this just proves it. Uh, does it send you into depression? Does it, does it, does it make you mull obsessively over, over what that person said? How do you cope with criticism? Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is rejoicing, he's happy for a change. He's rejoicing because for a change the Corinthians have got something right. Paul had sent a letter to the Corinthians, a severe letter, a hard letter, a letter in which he criticised them and he finds out in this passage that the Corinthians responded in a really good way to his criticism. Now, I need to give you a bit of background here. Because this passage, it actually takes us right back to near the beginning of the letter. In chapter 7 and verse 5, we're picking up from what Paul was talking about all the way back in chapter 2. Just look at me at how it flows and you'll see what I mean. Come back with me then to chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Okay, I see Paul talking about his travels and... Uh, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now jump with me to chapter 7 and verse 5. Okay, we've gone from Troas to Macedonia. Now, chapter 7 and verse 5. When we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest and so on. You see Paul's picking up where he left off. Uh, We're back following his travels in Macedonia. In other words, that whole section that we've been looking at for the last month or so, that whole section from chapter 2 verse 14 to chapter 7 verse 4 is one big tangent. You thought I was bad. There's a tangent here that goes on for, for chapter after chapter. Now, it's important stuff. All those things about Paul's ministry and his suffering and the new covenant, the call on the Corinthians to stick with Paul, to stick with the gospel he brought them, it's been, it's been very important stuff. But in terms of Paul's argument as a whole, it's been a digression from what he was saying. And now, after all this time, we're coming back to what he was saying back in chapter 2. Okay, you with me? All right, so so what we need to do then is get back into the picture, because it's months, months ago since we looked at chapter 2. Let me remind you of what uh, chapters 1 and 2 were about. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul was talking about his travel plans. Uh, Originally, Paul had told the Corinthians that he didn't want to visit them immediately. That was plan A. But soon after that, Paul's plans changed. There was a problem in Corinth. Paul decided that he would make a quick visit. Uh, But it proved to be what Paul calls a painful visit. A man in the church had done the wrong thing, and when he was there, it seems Paul didn't get the support that he wanted from the congregation. And so Paul decided he should make two more visits to Corinth. That was plan B. But again, Paul changed his mind. Instead of visiting, Paul decided it would be better to send his friend Titus with a letter, a letter for the church in Corinth, what he calls his severe letter. So that's the background. Paul has twice changed his plans. He said he wouldn't come, but then he did. Then he said he would come, but he didn't. He sent a letter with Titus instead. Now, I know it's a while since we did it, but is that ringing some bells for people who were here a few months ago? Okay, good. All right, well, as we saw in our first reading, in chapters 1 to 2, Paul is defending his actions about these changed plans. He says he made his plans severely uh, he made his cha- plans sincerely, sorry. He said he made his plans sincerely. He only changed them when he thought it was the, for the best. And then, then he talks about uh, the letter that he wrote and he talks about uh, what a good result it had had. The Corinthians did what Paul asked. They disciplined the man in the church who had done the wrong thing. Okay, but then what Paul does, and you need to listen to this because it's a little complicated. Then what Paul does, he jumps back in time a little bit. He jumps back in time in his mind to before he found out how the Corinthians had received the letter. He jumps back in time and he talks about how he went into Troas but he was so worried about how the Corinthians would respond to his letter that he couldn't stick around. He was so worried waiting for Titus to come up with with news of how the Corinthians had responded. He just couldn't even stay put. He had to move on to Macedonia. And uh, that's where we pick it up now in chapter 7. Paul is in Macedonia but he's still worried. Not only was ministry tough, not only was there persecution, not only did he have conflicts on the outside, he says we were also suffering from fears within. Uh, Paul feared that this could be the end of his relationship with the Corinthians. 18 months of hard work with them down the drain. He he thought that the letter that he'd sent might just mess it up, it might harden their hearts instead of bringing them to repentance. He, he He was scared. Have a look with me. Chapter 7 and verse 5. Chapter 7 and verse 5. when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Now, Paul was worried. But there was good news. While Paul, while Paul was in Macedonia, Titus arrived and he reported that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians hadn't broken down at all. The Corinthians, they loved Paul. They they were sorry for what had happened and they wished that he was there with them. Verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever so Paul then starts to reflect on this letter that he'd written, this this severe letter. Back back when he wrote it, he was really worried. He wasn't sure if he'd done the right thing. As he says back in chapter 2, he wrote out of great distress, anguish of heart, with many tears. This was a tough letter. He'd said some hard things. He'd said some critical things. And he really wondered what was going to happen. But now Paul knows from Titus what did happen. The Corinthians were sorry for what they'd done. That sorrow, it didn't lead them to despair. It didn't lead them to shoot the messenger and reject Paul. It didn't do them any harm. Instead, it brought them to repentance. Their sorrow inspired them to fix up the things that Paul told them about. Verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. It's good news. Paul then talks about a couple of different kinds of sorrow. When you do something wrong, there are a couple of ways you can be sorry about it. On the one hand, you can be sorry in a godly way. You you realise you've done the wrong thing, you're sorry about it and so you change your mind. You you confess to God that you've sinned, You, you seek his forgiveness and you take action to address the issue. You fix up what you've messed up, pay back what you owe, take steps to ensure that it won't happen again. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that repentance brings salvation. There's a godly sorrow, one that you'll never regret. It leaves no regret. But when you do something wrong, it's also possible that you could be sorry about it in an ungodly way, in a worldly way. Now maybe when, you've re- when you realise you've done the wrong thing, you despair. You think there's no way you could ever be forgiven. Or maybe your sorrow never translates into action. You, you mope about for a while, but you don't fix things up. You don't take steps to stop yourself from doing it again. Sometimes the way you're sorry for, for what you've done, it just makes matters worse. So, verse 10, have a look at these two kinds of sorrow. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. Two kinds of sorrow. I reckon this is beautifully illustrated for us by by two men in the Bible. Um, Just before he died, I'm sure you remember this, there were two of Jesus' disciples who really, really messed it up. Uh, Firstly, there was a bloke by the name of Judas. Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. He he led the authorities to Jesus while he was in a quiet place, away from the crowds, so that they they could arrest him on the quiet. He betrayed the Lord Jesus. On the other hand, there was Peter. Peter denied three times that he knew Jesus, chickened out, deserted Jesus, failed him miserably. Judas and Peter, they both messed up big time. And they were both sorry about it. When Judas realised what what he'd done, the Bible says he was seized with remorse. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas was sorry. When Peter realised what he'd done, the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Peter was sorry. Both men messed up. Both men were sorry. But the point is this. Their Their sorrow led them in two very, very different directions. Judas Judas never went back to the disciples. He never never went back to the risen Jesus. Instead, out of his his guilt and his shame and his despair, he he went away and hanged himself. His worldly sorrow led to death. Uh, but, But then there was Peter. Despite his shame, despite his guilt, despite all of the bravado, the big bubble had been pricked, He went back to be with the disciples, ate humble pie. And and when Jesus rose again from the dead, Peter didn't run away at 100 miles an hour. He faced up to him. He he reaffirmed his love for him. He accepted Jesus' forgiveness. He accepted Jesus' reinstatement. And he went on to live a life of, life of, of brave and faithful ministry. Never again did Peter make that same mistake. Never again did he deny his Lord. They nailed Peter to a cross and never again did he deny his Lord. That was a godly sorrow. A sorrow that led to repentance. A sorrow that means that Peter is now with Jesus in glory, saved by God's grace from the coming judgment of God. See the difference? It's vivid, isn't it? Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. I, th- I think most people, when they consider what... what how christians respond to sin they think it's all about being sorry for sin and people think that's what repentance is it's much more than that isn't it it's not just being sorry it's a sorrow that leads to change well in the case of the corinthians paul's letter brought them to a godly sorrow a sorrow that did lead to change to repentance back in chapter 2 we saw a bit of what that repentance looked like they they disciplined the man who had done the wrong thing who Now here in chapter 7, Paul goes on to talk a bit more about it. And look look at what it looked like, this this change in their behaviour. Verse 11 it is, verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter really made a difference you know the biggest difference though the biggest difference is they reaffirmed that they were under the apostleship of paul they were devoted to paul they loved paul they listened to paul they stuck with paul's gospel the original gospel and that's actually why paul wrote in the first place it wasn't just to fix up one situation he wanted them to realize that they were devoted to him as their apostle that they needed him that they needed the real gospel that he brought them that's why he was writing verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And by all this we're encouraged. Paul finishes off by telling them again how happy he is. When he sent Titus with the letter, he assured him it would be okay. Titus was probably a bit worried. What, now you're sending me with the letter? (laughs) But he assured him it'll be all right. The Corinthians would accept his authority. The Corinthians would fix up the problems and Paul's word proved to be true. The Corinthians didn't let him down. Continuing in verse 13. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I boasted to him about you and you've not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. Okay, can you see what this this section of the letter is all about? It's fairly simple, really, isn't it? Um, Titus has come back from Corinth. He's told Paul uh, how the Corinthians responded to his letter, and Paul is stoked. He's really happy, and he's telling the Corinthians how happy he is, at the way they responded, at the, at the godly sorrow that his letter led them to, the, this sorrow that produced repentance, this sorrow that got them to accept Titus, deal with the issue, reaffirm their devotion to Paul and the gospel. All right. What about us then? How, how then should we respond to this passage? What's this passage, uh, how does it apply to us? Here in Chatswood 2007. It's fairly personal in one sense, isn't it? Uh, the Corinthians responding to Paul's letter, but I reckon we we can certainly learn from the Word of God here. I think we can learn from Paul's example and I think we can also learn from the example of the Corinthians because they both get it right in this passage. Now Paul, uh, Paul gives us an example here of saying tough things. He's a good example of giving criticism. He's being he's being what Solomon would have called a real friend to the Corinthians here. He's the sort of friend whose wounds can be trusted. You a friend like that? There are two big traps we can fall into when it comes to criticism. On the one hand, it is possible to be way over the top. Not just wound people, but to murder people. (laughs) Some people can be really nitpicky. They can be I'm censorious is the word, sorry if that's a new word for you, but here you go, there's a new word for you, put it in your your lexicon, in your mind. Censorious, severely critical, always fault-finding, nitpicking. Uh, But Paul's not like that, is he? This tough letter that he sent, he sent it out of love for the Corinthians. He's just told them, you've got such a place in my heart, I would live or die with you. Paul thought long and hard about what he did. He did not send off a, an email straight away in, in his grumpiness. He, he, he thought carefully, what should I say? How should I say it? He sent a letter instead of going in person. He wrote the letter with prayers and with tears and with distress. And he only did it because he thought the consequences of the Corinthians' actions were so serious. There's nothing censorious about what Paul's doing here. He just doesn't be critical for criticism's sake. It's a careful, a loving, a necessary criticism. But I suspect that in the modern Western church, our problem is not usually censoriousness. We far more often fall into the second trap, and that's the trap of being too gutless to, never say, to, to ever say anything hard to anyone. Someone misses church for a month and we're too scared to give them a phone call in case we offend them. Someone is doing something that is so obviously sinful and stupid and spiritually dangerous and we keep silent because because we don't want to ruin the friendship, because we don't want to be hypocrites, because we we, we don't want to talk about their speck when we've got a log in our own eye to misquote Jesus. Uh, Again, that's not what Paul does. Paul didn't find it easy... But he had the guts to say hard things when it was necessary. He didn't let people just float off happily to hell. He did what he could to stop it. He sets a good example for us here. He's not censorious, but he does pull the Corinthians up when they go astray. He will give criticism. He will give rebuke when it's necessary. We should learn from Paul's example here. And uh, we should also learn, I think, from the example of the Corinthians. We can learn from the way that they took Paul's criticism, from the way they responded to Paul's criticism. We can learn from their godly sorrow that led them to repentance. Let's just think about it for a minute. How should we respond to criticism? Someone criticizes you, maybe in person, maybe you get criticized in, in a Bible talk or in Bible study or something. God's word is criticizing you. What do you do? What do you do? I guess the first step is check if the criticism is true. Um, is it a right application of what the Bible says? Is it in line with in fact what God's word is? Uh, is it a true understanding of what you've done? Has the person has the person um, got you right? Have you in fact done or said what you've been what you've been criticized for? Let's check if it's true first. If it is true, if it is true, then I ought to be sorry. I shouldn't get defensive. I shouldn't shoot the messenger and go on with all the wrong things that he or she does wrong, one-upping them. I should have the humility to, to take it on the chin, face the truth, be sorry. How are you with that one? It's not enough, though, is it, according to this passage? It's not just be sorry. As this passage says, that sorrow has got to be a godly sorrow. It mustn't be an impotent sorrow The sort of sorrow that doesn't have any impact on me. I'll mope about for a while but I won't change. That's not good enough. Uh, It mustn't be a despairing sorrow. Oh, I'm so hopeless. Somebody's criticised me. I'm a completely useless person and give up. Uh, No, It mustn't be a regretful sorrow where you mull over what you've done obsessively for weeks. We need to make sure we have a godly sorrow. The sort of sorrow that turns us to God. The sort of sorrow that makes us confess our sin to God the sort of sorrow that makes us rely again on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that is enough to forgive us for that and any other sin we have ever done. The sort of sorrow that will make us call on the power of the Holy Spirit to change us so that we make restitution, so we fix up what we can and so we take steps not to do it again. It's going to take some humility, isn't it? It's going to take some humility. Humility. It's going to take some sacrifice as well, isn't it? Oh, I don't know about you, but there's some of my sins. I really cherish them. Love them. It's going to be tough to, to sincerely repent and give it up. Uh, godly sorrow may be tough. Repentance may be hard. But the thing we need to remember is this. Repentance leads to Salvation. Jesus didn't die in agony on the cross for you so you can continue to wallow in sin. Jesus died to purify you. Christians, by very definition, are people who change their minds and change their ways and change their lives to be in line with what King Jesus says. That's a Christian. You don't want to be in line with what he says. Don't pretend to be a follower of Christ, a subject of Christ. Christians are, in their very essence, repenters. And so we must learn this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. I know flattery is nicer. Much rather have it. Much rather give it. I know criticism is unpleasant, both to give and to receive. But the Christian life is a life of repentance. It is the wounds of a friend that we should want, not the kisses of an enemy. And so we ought to learn from both Paul and the Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians 7, we need to have the guts to give criticism where it's necessary. We need to have the humility to take criticism, to have that godly sorrow that brings repentance and leads leads by the grace of God, by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to our eternal salvation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that he has died on the cross, bearing our sin in himself, so that when we confess our sin to you, it is paid for. We thank and praise you, Lord God, that you have raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead as king and saviour and judge. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to change our lives, to, to bring our lives into line, with the will of, the, of King Jesus. And we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ at your right hand has poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will enable us by your Spirit to confess our sin, to have a godly sorrow, to be repentant. And please, we pray, grant us your salvation. In Jesus' name.